Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Book of Romans, the first page. It is exciting to begin this new book. And before I give sort of its introduction, let's read the first seven verses of the introduction. So just give me a chance to find Romans. It's I'm, I'm trying to help with the order. It just we're going in order. We're going John, Acts and then Romans. So we're just sort of getting those that trifecta of books through here as a church in our early days. I'm. Again, I'm reading in the NASB this morning. I'm really sorry. I'm not switching our church over to NASB. It's just I cannot find my ESV Bible. Uh, this was the first one I had. It's my old teenage Bible. Yeah, that's true. You all have ESVs in your hands. Oh, I don't have one. So you'll have to sort of do the translation as I go. So Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We just heard that in Isaiah 9. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, now to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we open your word now, we pray that you would open our hearts to believe it, to understand it, and to embrace it. Where we know that this book is dense, it is tightly argued, it is historic, it is complex at times, and yet it is beautifully simple. So God, grant us eyes to see its truth and ears to hear this morning, and may what we meditate upon be pleasing in your sight, and may what I say be acceptable to you, O God. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This book is radically different than anything we have done as a church before. You should know that at the outset. We've only preached, really, through narrative as a church. Narrative is a type of scripture that tells a story in sort of a chronological order of some kind or in a descriptive fashion. The book of John is a narrative of the life of Jesus Christ, as are the four Gospels. Likewise, the book of Acts is a narrative of the first 40 years of church history. So often the applications you get or the way you interact with the scripture is just very different. You look for cultural similarities to sort of parallel what the people did in the text and you draw conclusions and imitate patterns thereof. Now, when you come to a book like this, this is what they call didactic scripture. Didactic is just from the Greek word to teach. It's sort of like a textbook as opposed to a historical narrative. And so even when you look at those seven verses, the way the grammar links all of the words together has tremendous meaning for your life. 
You will never have appreciated grammar until you really dive into God's word, especially in the book of Romans. Grammar can be life-giving. Okay, for and I'm not just trying to you know pump your tires if you're an educator or homeschooling, but truly grammar can be life-saving when we come to understand how God has communicated to us and that no word is chosen by accident. No phrase is a throwaway phrase in the Bible. It's all inspired by God. So you are going to find shorter sections generally of text each Sunday as we go through, which is why it'll take us longer than Acts. But God willing, it will lay a foundation for us in terms of our worldview that is utterly irreplaceable. And it's the book itself is, is called, has been called the magnum opus of Paul, his greatest work. It's recognized by scholars outside the Bible as one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written inside the Bible or outside. It's really Paul's grand summary of the Christian narrative, the Christian worldview, the Christian story. The book itself establishes a holistic Christian worldview. And one of the reasons for this is that the book was not written to address a specific sin or a specific uh, circumstance. Although it was written in a particular historic occasion, it was not written with a particular sin in mind or something to correct or some, some item to expand, as we see in the book of Galatians, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of Revelation even, are all written for a specific time and in a certain circumstance. Whereas the book of Romans... It was sort of a letter that Paul sent ahead of time so that his readers would get it and go through all of it. And then when he came, he wouldn't have to lay as much of a foundation. He said to the Romans, I'm longing to come and visit you. And after I visit you, I'm going to go visit Spain, which we know he never made it to Spain. And so the book itself is, is a foundation. It, it is the most broad in its ambition, I would say, in terms of communicating the Christian truth. The study of Romans, and I think this is the point for us, it is critical to ground a Christian in Christian thinking, which might sound redundant. If you're a Christian, aren't you already thinking like a Christian? Well, not necessarily. Romans is one of the best books to ground you in what it really means to think like a Christian and to look at the world like a Christian. Romans actually contains probably six or seven of the hardest most challenging statements in the whole New Testament, I would say. Most of the most controversial things that Christians like to fight about are found right here in Romans. It's a great time to study Romans. Right now, there's a lot of fighting about what Romans 13 says. I used to argue a lot about what Romans 9 through 11 say. This book did that for Luther, Martin Luther, who I mentioned a few years ago, we preached a little bit in Romans, just one verse, and what we found in Martin Luther's life was that this book was the grounding for him, and it was very likely the fire starter for the Reformation. His understanding and his grounding in the book of Romans made him an immovable object when it came to the Pope's uh, condemnation of his work. Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses 503 years ago in 1517, but long before that, he was a... Uh, a doctor of theology at the Wittenberg University. And he lectured on the book of Romans 
over three semesters. He was studied in this book in particular. And when he posted the 95 Theses, Pope Leo X at the time condemned the Theses, and he gave Luther time to, re to retract it, to recant. And he sent what they call a papal bull, which is like a decree. It's a notice to Luther to say, you must recant your 95 Theses. Do you know what Luther did with that papal bull? He burned it. Okay, so making a statement, I, I will, not only will I not recant, but I will not even regard this letter as a serious threat to the doctrine of God. He was later invited to the Diet of Worms about three years later. Now that's 500 years ago this year, 1520. He was invited to the Diet of Worms because of the mercy of a prince that he knew that interceded for him because at that time you would have just been executed as a heretic. Instead, they invited him to the Diet of Worms, which is a city where they basically put him on trial. And they commanded him there to recant his Christian conviction. And he responded, unless I am persuaded by logic or scripture, I am bound by the word of God. I, I can't move. He uttered that famous saying, here I stand, I can do no other. And I'm reading a translation of his lectures on Romans. And the translator in his introduction says this. Now, hear this. He said about Luther's studies in Romans, and I pray this would be said of us. One can understand why the author of these lectures on Romans could not be forced by the mere assertion of authority to recant his views. Did you hear that? One can understand if you read his teachings, you can understand why he wasn't convinced by mere authority. And why, or to recant his views, and why it was impossible to silence him by the conventional means of dealing with a heretic. Whoever would oppose him in order to refute him would have to meet him on the ground of that understanding of the gospel, which he had slowly achieved by conscientious study and spiritual struggle. Luther didn't cram study two nights before the Diet of Worms to figure out what he was going to say. He was grounded in the truth of God, that when he was tested, it was so buried deep inside him, there was no way to move him off of his Christian conviction. Friends, for the days that we are living in, that is, a, that is demanded of us, that we know what we believe and why we believe it, and we don't move. That we would say with Luther, here I stand and I can do no other. Now, you will be tested in this book to accept some of the things that God has said about himself. You will be tested. Some things will offend you. They will challenge you. They will turn your Christian thinking upside down. And if you are able then to embrace all that is in it, we will be among those whose minds have been purified by the word of God and reoriented towards God. I think this book is going to clean house on a lot of bad ideas that we might have, myself included. So I just want to summarize the book very quickly. It's hard to dive into the first seven verses if you don't even know what's coming down the road. It's good to look at the whole Google map before you figure out what your first turn is. So chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Romans highlights the natural condition of all people under God. It really just spans what the world is like in general. Everyone, 
as one category being a human being. And what's our condition? According to the book of Romans, it's that we're separate, sinful, hopeless without God. That's everybody. That's Jews and Gentiles, separate, sinful, and hopeless. It's a theme. It's an undergirding that will carry a lot of weight throughout the rest of Scripture. So he establishes that in the beginning of the book. And at the end of that section comes Jesus Christ. The cross is mentioned at the end of chapter 3 to deal with the reality of where humans are. Chapters 4 through 8 highlight the place and the function of the law and promise, which is a very important distinction in Paul's mind, the difference between the law and promise and how God deals with his covenant people. And then how a Christian should live in light of those two facets of God's redemptive purposes. In chapters 7 and 8, we really see that how a Christian lives in the light of those things. Chapters 9 through 11 discuss redemptive history. It discusses Israel and where Israel is at today and how God used them and why they are where they are. And even why God and how God is using the current condition of Israel to actually bring about Gentile salvation. And it culminates with a famous verse in chapter 11, verse 36. Praising God for his inscrutable wisdom. When you look at all of redemptive history. And then chapters 12 through 16 discuss ethics. Christian ethics. So how do these redeemed people live in light of the aftermath of God's cross? the Jesus Christ on the cross. Discusses Christian unity as a response to the gospel. It discusses our relationships to each other and to the institution of the civil government. Chapter 13. And that whole section is filled with stunning insights. Sometimes in the ethics section, we can just blow through and basically say, yeah, be a good person. But there's so much in the ethics and how it's tied back to theology uh, that really, I think, revolutionizes. Well, it does human beings as a whole. So that's the summary of the book. Now, if that hasn't persuaded you, I think the introduction is going to answer the question, why does this book warrant study? Why does it warrant attention? And why does it warrant humility from us to regard it as God's own word? Well, in Paul's introduction, we have an outline that, number one, the message is trustworthy. And it's supernatural revelation. That's what the book of Romans is. It's trustworthy supernatural revelation by virtue of the witness who wrote it and by virtue of the scriptures upon which it is built, which is, again, why we read Isaiah chapter 9. The foundation being the scriptures that are known to be trustworthy in God's covenant people. So it's trustworthy. It's revelation. Number two, that Christ is the interpretive key to God's plan. We see how Christ expands and applies all of the work of God to us, makes it accessible to us. And then number three, that it appeals to all people to recognize and to reconcile to God. That's why we should understand this book because it tells us who we are and it tells us what is to become of the world and how we should relate to that world and what we should say to them when we speak to them so that they can understand what we have come to understand. So let's dive in. Paul, who is a 
servant of Jesus Christ. The, the word in the ESV, what does it say? Servant? It says servant. The uh, New American Standard says bond servant, which is closer. The word there in the original Greek just simply means slave. It's a hard word to translate for translators to do it properly. I don't know of any translations that just translate it slave. Maybe because of the days that we live in, it's not a popular term to use. Maybe it could cause misunderstanding, but the word is slave. Paul says, I'm Paul, and I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he is bound to Jesus Christ. He has no option than other to do, than to do what Christ has told him to do. But then he also identifies a calling, which is sort of a secondary layer to his slavery to Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a slave of Christ. That is true of all of us. And then as a secondary layer, the second part of verse 1, he says, called as an apostle. Called as an apostle. So Paul comes to this table, to this writing as saying, now I also have a unique role in the kingdom. I'm not a slave only. I also have a calling to do something, and that is to be an apostle. Apostleship was a, a unique gift that Jesus Christ gave the church. It included the, the original 11 disciples who survived after the resurrection. Obviously, Judas did not. Paul was added to their number to make 12. These became the 12 apostles of the church. It's a unique gift. It's a unique calling. Jesus called every one of those disciples by name, by his own sovereignty. And so Paul says, I have also been called as an apostle. He's sure of his job. And I think it's an appropriate way to speak of whatever your calling is in life, whatever your vocation is. May we, like Paul, identify not only as Christians, but as whatever it is that is our calling. Are you a mother? Are you a businessman? Are you a programmer? Are you a bricklayer? Are you a nurse? Are you a retired Christian? What stage of your calling are you at? That is no less important to who you are in the kingdom of God than is your salvation in general. You're not just called to become a slave and then sit in a dungeon. We are slaves to Christ, but for the purpose of working for him. And so that calling comes through here that he is an apostle. We realize that if you look back and we just went through all of his testimonies where he recognizes that Jesus gave a special calling upon his life. He said in Acts chapter 9 to Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to go to the Gentiles and to go before kings and princes. Paul had a unique calling as an apostle. And so he writes this letter as an apostle. And then he is set apart in the second part of the verse here, set apart for the gospel of God, which means he has his calling, which is his vocation. And then being set apart is the description of that job. This word set apart can be translated sanctified or separated. It's used in the Old Testament to speak of the holy instruments that were used for ceremonial worship. Like a set apart spoon or a set apart candle holder. It has some special function. And Paul says, my apostleship is to be set apart for the gospel. That's my work. That's my bread and butter. That's my vocation is to work for the kingdom of God. And so his, his instrumentation in the hand of Christ is to expand this gospel. 
It's to bring about the growth of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul sets up the book. I'm writing this to expand the gospel. So friends, as we understand this book, the gospel will have expanded implications for your life. The gospel, I, I trust and I, I believe if you're anything like me, the gospel has not yet had its full effect in your life. It's not yet fully enveloped every part of your being and your thoughts and your actions and your job. It has not yet fully sanctified every part of us. I trust that to be true of all of us. And so as we understand this book, may the gospel grow in its effect on our lives. He also expands on this theme of being an instrument of God. We'll get to that in chapter 6. That every Christian is not just, again, just redeemed and then floating aimlessly in a world that belongs to somebody else. It's God's world, and we become instruments in his world. And so Paul lays this out in the introduction. It's neat how so many themes are seeded right here in the introduction. And so what is the gospel of God? When he says set apart for the gospel of God, what is that? It's synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. All of these phrases describe the very same thing. The gospel, in its broadest, most truthful sense, is not the description of Jesus on the cross for your sins. That is good news. But when Paul says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, he's describing the reign of God. Jesus makes most explicit that the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. That's the good news. The good news that we have to share with our world is that there is a kingdom coming. There's an entire kingdom that is coming, that is moving across the earth and gaining an influence. That's the good news. If we don't share that there's a kingdom coming, then the message of the cross makes no sense. I'm not going to develop this too much more than that. But if you start with your gospel presentation to our world by saying Jesus died on the cross for your sins, they will have no clue what you're talking about. They don't know that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the king of kings. We don't know that Jesus announced a kingdom was coming. They don't realize that to enter this kingdom, one must be morally perfect. They don't understand that we are not morally perfect and that Jesus Christ is. And through his death and resurrection, we become participants and members of that kingdom. So the good news is that the kingdom's coming. That's the good news. The bad news is none of us are qualified or worthy of living in it until Jesus Christ does something with our lives. So that's helpful just to set up what Paul means by the gospel of God. It's the announcement of the reign of God through Jesus Christ as the kingdom head, the king. This is also not a novel message. Again, this, is mes this message is trustworthy and supernatural. What does Paul lay his foundation on here? Is he saying, now God is doing a radically new thing and I've got this you know, revelation that nobody else knows about, and God's got a new program? Not at all. He says, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Older Testament. He promised a gospel. He promised a gospel to Abraham. He promised a gospel to Adam and Eve. He promised a gospel to Noah. 
The gospel is promised all throughout the Old Testament. And it finds its foundation there. That's how we know that what Jesus did is rooted in God's work. Because it's a continuation and a fulfillment of that work. Now that's a whole sermon series on its own. We see in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus walks to Emmaus with his disciples. It says he started with the law and the prophets. And he showed how everything was about him. The whole Old Testament anticipates Jesus Christ. So when Paul announces the gospel in the book of Romans, it's not a new thing. It's just something that we now have the retrospective clarity of that the prophets didn't have. They didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. They didn't know specifically who his parents would be. They didn't know specifically which town he might have been born or grew up in. There was some confusion there. They didn't know necessarily that he would die a Roman crucifixion. They didn't see all that with clarity or even the resurrection with total clarity the way the apostles were able to see, which is why they preached on the Old Testament to begin their ministries. They kept saying, look, this is what God promised would happen. And so he lays his gospel announcement upon the foundation of the Old Testament. It's trustworthy. It's not something new. And so his announcement comes as the completion of God's promise. It's the fulfillment of God's promise. So the, this book is trustworthy. The, the book of Romans is trustworthy, and it's true in relationship to what God has promised he would do. The second part of why this book is important is because it shows us how Christ, Jesus Christ, is the interpretive key to God's whole plan. God's plan is not good news to you if there is no Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. The good news of the kingdom is bad news unless you know the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel orbits around the Messiah. Everything about who God is and what he has promised and what is available to mankind must take into account Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we are lost. There is no salvation outside any other name, Peter said in the book of Acts. He promises beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning his son. Concerning his son. The promises of the gospel concern the son of the living God. There's a twofold aspect to Jesus' nature here that we should check out. There was theological debates through church history about whether Jesus was only, only appeared to be a man, or whether he was only sort of divine but a man, but sort of had prophetic gifts. The nature of Jesus Christ has been debated through church history. But right here in the introduction of Romans that we can e so easily just slip right past, the nature of Jesus is laid out for us, and it's critical to the fulfillment of the plan. Number one, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So Jesus has a fleshly aspect to his nature that is critical to who he is. Why? Because he was born to the line of David. We've talked about this actually about this time last year. That Jesus was born as an heir to a throne. He didn't just pop out of nowhere or sort of emerge from behind a cave in the first century saying, I'm a prophet sent from God. He was born to two parents, both of whom could trace their lineage back to the family of David, who was the king, 
God promised, I will send you a king like David. He said to Solomon, I will establish your throne forever. And so eventually, if that promise is going to be fulfilled, then one of David's descendants have to assume that throne. So Paul says, guess who that was? It was the son of God. He was born in the flesh to two parents. He was born a real baby in a real manger. He, you know, he was really swaddled. He really burped after he ate. You know, he really skinned his knee or, or hit his thumb with a hammer when he was, when he was working with his father. So Jesus Christ has a fully flesh nature. Otherwise, he's not a fulfillment of God's promise. Do you understand that? If he's not fully man, then God has lied to David. That's why that's so important. If Jesus was not born in the flesh, truly, as a descendant of David, then God lied to David, and we might as well throw the Bible out. If God lies to anybody, he could lie to all of us. God's promises are true, and he kept his promise through Jesus Christ in the flesh. But then what else does he say? In verse 4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to this, listen, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's this second part of his nature? Well, the first one is according to the flesh. The second one is according to the spirit. So Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God in the resurrection by or according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's already mentioned Jesus' name as just being Jesus Christ. And then when he uses his name after the resurrection, he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's pointing to something that happened at the resurrection that involved the Holy Spirit and involved some form of declaration by God of the authority of Jesus Christ. What happened at the resurrection? God vindicated Jesus. In other words, God raised him up to say he did not sin. He was who he said he was. He really is the Son of God. And remember, this is the thing that the scribes wanted to stone Jesus for saying, by making himself equal with God. Kids, if you're lost in a store, and you need to find your way back to the car, what's the first thing you would tell somebody? Who your mom and dad is. How tall they are, what color hair, what kind of jacket they were wearing. Because if you identify as a child of your mom or dad, it equates you with them. It puts you in the same family as them, right? Kids, especially now, if you don't know how to make a peanut butter and jam sandwich, you need your mom and dad. And likewise, as a son of God, Jesus Christ, in saying that he was the son or that calling God the father, he made himself equal with God. And the Pharisees admitted as much. Now, before the resurrection, there was some doubt about that in terms of, how they viewed him. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he put an end to that debate. He raised him up in power and he ascended Acts chapter one to the right hand of God, Ephesians chapter two, sorry, Ephesians chapter one, giving him a name that is above every name. So something unique happened at the resurrection where Jesus was given a reigning authority. That's what I'm trying to get at. He assumed not just the fleshly role of the king on earth, but he assumed a rule and a reign that is a that is cosmically above everything. Have you ever thought of that? That when God declared Jesus king, he made him king over everything. 
There is nothing in your life. There's nothing in my life. There's no problem that you face. There is no crisis in the culture over which Jesus is not king. He's king over everything because God declared him king. And it says that he did it for his name's sake. I want to skip down to that just for a minute. He said to bring about faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. This idea of the reign of Christ and for the sake of his name, his holiness, is so critical to our assurance. It's so critical to your joy as a Christian. Listen to this. Isaiah 48 and Psalm 106 reiterate this promise from God that salvation is primarily for God's fame. Again, Romans is going to be a rude awakening for a lot of us. Isaiah 48 chapter uh, verse 11 says, "My For my own sake, my own sake do I act for Israel, says God. God saved Israel for his own sake. Did he love Israel? Yes. Who did he love ultimately? His own fame, his own glory. If God is for any glory that is lesser than himself, he is less than totally God. God is the only one on earth in the Trinity to rightly acknowledge his own glory. Have you ever thought about that? None of us rightly acknowledge the ultimacy and the, the potency of his authority. He's the only one who acknowledges that his glory and his authority is above everything. So when he says, I saved you for my own sake, it is a blessing. It is an assurance that God will always act for his character at the utmost. Psalm cha uh, chapter 106, verse 8 says, Yet he saved them for his own sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Romans 9 through 11 blows our socks off if we are man-centered. If, if we think the gospel rotates around us, it is the rudest awakening to go through Romans because it is for his sake that he saved us, to make his power known. And friends, that is the most assuring and relieving fact I have ever come to know as a Christian. When I realized that my salvation was about God, I stopped worrying about it. Because I knew that God would never sully his own name. I want to put this forward to you. And, and hopefully if, as we go through this book, you can embrace this one fact. That living as a Christian is not about realizing your own potential. It's not about realizing your own worth, your own talent, your own satisfaction. It's not about realizing those things. It's about conforming to the recreation of the whole world to God through Jesus Christ as servants. In that one fact is bound up all the Christian assurance you will ever need. You will ever need because you will stop measuring the power of the gospel based on how you think you are doing. If the gospel is about recognizing your own self-esteem or your own greatness or your own talent, when you fall short of your standards of where you think you should be, which is, by the way, rooted in pride, you will begin to think that the power of the gospel is insufficient for you, that God hasn't done something to, for you that he promised that he would do. What's the gospel about? It's about declaring Jesus' reign. It's about declaring his lordship. It's about declaring his glory on the earth. That's what the gospel is about. Romans, in the introduction, gets us to that point. 
The introduction gets us to that point. This book is going to rock. It gives us relief against rebuke from the world. It gives us relief from every form of guilt and shame. And it delivers for us the greatest joy we could ever have. That God saved us for his sake. He saved us for his own fame. As we look for his reign and supremacy in every part of life, we will be motivated despite our failures. I've messed up as a pastor probably more since COVID-19 than I ever did before. But I'm way more excited than I ever have been to be a pastor and to serve with these elders and to lead this church because I know that I have to answer for my failures and I know that I don't reach the standard that God has called me to, but I know that God is working in me and in you for his own glory. And I know that his glory is going to win. I know that his glory is going to cover the earth, which means we are secondary to that. And he will work in us to bring about that glory. I have total confidence in that. So I'm bummed out when I mess up, but it's not the end of the world because I know the gospel will prevail because it's for God. So again, the gospel orbits around Christ. It orbits around his name. It orbits around his fame. So Christ is the interpretive key to God's whole plan. And trust me, the whole book is going to reveal that to us. Today's not the only day we're going to deal with that. Again, these are almost teasers for where the book is going to go. And then finally, it appeals to all people to recognize and reconcile to God. So Paul, the writer, speaking of Jesus Christ in verse 5, says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So we've received even our gifts in the church from God. For what? To bring about something. To realize something. To accomplish something. Our gifts in God are not just to be shiny and look at. They're to bring about, Paul says, my apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called Jesus Christ. Now, this book was written to a group of Jewish believers. But what he's saying is, my apostleship has a purpose to bring about obedience among non-Jewish people. That might have shocked the Jews in the first place. They're like, what do you mean? Jesus is our Messiah. What do you mean bring about obedience of all the Gentiles? Paul would, in another book elsewhere, he would send greeting from the household of Caesar. The gospel eventually got into Caesar's palace. I mean, talk about pagan Gentiles being transformed by the gospel of God. It's to bring about or to secure obedience to God, to the gospel, to his commands. Now, I don't want you to be confused that that doesn't mean that apostles or pastors get to coerce people and say, it's my job for you to believe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God is making his appeal through us. So again, we are just instruments. We are just instruments of his ends. He's using us for his fame. He is bringing about obedience among the Gentiles through us. We don't... We don't make demands as of our own authority or of our own boldness, but we make the commands that God makes upon people. The gospel, we have to remember, folks, is a command. 
It's not merely an invitation. It's not merely God sort of waving some nice smelling flowers and hoping somebody follows him. That's not how God works. It's a command. Acts chapter 17, Paul said, God now commands that all men everywhere repent. The gospel is a command. Again, I pray this book is shattering some of the ideas that we've had about God. It doesn't mean we're unkind or rude. It means that the gospel is a universal command. And we are not to be ashamed about that. We command all men everywhere to repent in the gospel. And we have to recognize again, Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us that when Christ went up to heaven, he gave gifts by the Holy Spirit, and that through those gifts, his kingdom advances. It's through the ministry of those gifts that his kingdom expands, that the obedience of the Gentiles comes about. It's not just apostles. Those gifts include apostles, evangelists, prophets, and teachers, and administrators, and servants, and generous people, and prayer people. Like, there's a lot of gifts in the body, and they're all meant to bring about obedience of the world to God's gospel. And so one, one distinction of the new covenant is this gift of apostleship. And that is because in the new covenant, the Gentiles are radically and expansively included into the people of God. And so this new office of apostle springs up out of this ministry to go out from Jerusalem and to call men to join Jesus Christ. So that's kind of a neat historic distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. And Paul is one of those 12 who were there. And then he says to the Gentiles, or sorry, he says to the Jews here in verse 7, or verse 6, I'm not saying that there's a new gospel for Gentiles. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm not creating a separate church for the Gentiles. He says back to the Jews, now you're among the same folks as I'm bringing about obedience. I mean, this is, he is starting from the ground up here saying God is building one family out of the two. And again, he deals with this magnificently in chapters 9 through 11. This is why the book concludes with verse 7. It's not just to the Jews in Rome. Verse 7 says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This book invites everyone, beloved of God, to understand salvation. The book assumes no knowledge. It starts right from the beginning. If you are young in the Christian faith or you feel like you don't have a grasp on the Bible, this is the greatest book to start in. It's dense. It's complex. But it builds a solid view of the world in Jesus Christ. And Paul turns his attention to the world at large as the gospel promise is given to them. And I'm so excited to look at chapter one over the next couple of weeks. We're, it's going to take us a few weeks just to get through chapter one. But it really begins with nature and humanity and how the world really is. The context that the gospel is going into. And this is so pertinent for us in our time. If we think, oh, the Christian age is over. Look how bad things are getting. That's the world that Paul was writing into. Paul was saying, this is the context that the gospel is going into. And it's very similar for the days that we're living in now. 
I'm going to say this offhand. I'm not going to develop it, but I would say we are more in a pre-Christian age than we are in a post-Christian age. You could debate that with me if you wanted, but that's the way I like to look at it. We're living in a pre-Christian age, and the gospel will go out in its power for the supremacy of Jesus Christ, for the salvation of Gentiles everywhere, and we will humbly be included in God's redemption. We have such a great hope in that. We have such a great hope, and this book will really ground us with assurance in what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer.